from Brighton on the English South Coast, these are the voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums with Dr Sophie Frost. And so, here we are at the end of Voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums. I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have making it. Over three series and 16 episodes, we've heard from 27 staff and volunteers working across this incredible museum service on the South Coast. In creating this podcast, I've been really keen to show that the Royal Pavilion and Museums is so much more than the sum of its parts. Each of its sites, from Hove Museum to Preston Manor, from the Booth Museum to Brighton Museum and the Pavilion itself, contains so many universal stories of human experience, intrigue and endeavour, stories which are as important as the objects that they house. The people that have told us these stories have taken us all over the place. They've taken us on bus trips around Brighton with Boris the Siberian Tiger, they've walked with us down the garden paths of the Pavilion Gardens, listening to the daily refrains of squirrels and buskers, they've taken us on excellent adventures back in time, to when the Prince Regent wined and dined his illustrious guests, to when the Royal Pavilion was a hospital for Indian soldiers, to the notorious power cut at the Booth Museum of Natural History and to the shenanigans involved in being part of Brighton Pride every year. These people have introduced us to both new and old ideas. They've inspired us to think differently about our communities and whose voices and stories are interesting and valuable. They've reinterpreted key moments in the past so that we can see their relevance for the future. And they've shown us that a museum institution is made up of many different individuals. Individuals who all have fascinations, dreams and desires and who are excited about what a museum can be. Now, more than ever, these people and their stories are vital for making sense of the time in which we find ourselves. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, museums across the world have had to make huge sacrifices. Many have had to close their doors and go online. Many have had to make their staff redundant. Many have had to cancel their exhibitions, programmes and outreach activities. And for most, the future remains desperately uncertain. The bottom line has always been money. And at the moment, it is hard to remember that there's a lot more at stake when it comes to our cultural and heritage organisations. I hope that this podcast helps remind us that we, as global citizens, are part of a diverse populace with a complicated history, who need our objects, our buildings, our stories to ground ourselves in who we are and who we want to be. In this final episode, I speak to two individuals that perhaps represent part of the future of our museums. Young, enthusiastic women who have big ideas about what museums can do. First, we'll hear from Nicola Adams, Digital Marketing Officer at Royal Pavilion and Museums, on how digital technology and social media is helping museums stay relevant. While this interview took place way before the virus, it's fascinating to hear how prescient Nicola's remarks are for the current moment. Um, so I'm Nicola Adams, um, I'm not the boxer, <laughs> <laughs> I am the Digital Marketing Officer um, at the Royal Pavilion and Museums. 
So I do all the digital um, marketing for the museum, so um, all five venues. So I do the social media, the e-newsletters, we do filming um, and photography supervisions. I do a lot of Facebook lives, um, so like, like anything mm-hmm. um, digital. Um, Sounds I, really varied. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so I started wrong. in 2014, I think, um, mm. as an apprentice, a digital media apprentice. I, I started um, learning everything about digital. Like I already was in a very digital-minded person anyway, mm-hmm. so this was just, it was just perfect. Like apprenticeship was perfect for me to just kind of learn on the job and um, sponge up all the wisdom. <laughs> so by the end of my apprenticeship, I was pretty much doing the job that I was applying for. Right. Um, luckily I got it as well so it was very lucky timing it was just lucky for me really and the role itself so you're responsible for all the social media for all the five venues Mm -hmm. plus a lot of other stuff yeah more or less for five years and in that time things have hugely changed well quite quickly wouldn't you say in terms of online marketing and kind of just the rate of change how we're using phones and everything like that Mm. have you found like you've had to adapt quite quickly in the job i think digital marketing um as a whole is always changing it's it's an industry that changes every time Mm -hmm. but even when a new iphone comes out there's new there's new apps that come out with it and if you're in that world you have to keep up with it because you get left behind basically Mm um i've introduced an Instagram account at Mm -hmm. the pavilion which was quite um, hard because we have to go through the council um, and the council are very um, weary of um, new accounts being made even though Instagram is something that a museum should have because we have so many collections and visual collections that we should be sharing um, like I, I was quite surprised that there wasn't an Instagram before mm. I came along because I was mm. like, hey, let's get, a, let's get an Instagram account and everyone's like, ooh. When RPM goes to trust, do you think that will mean, are you excited that it will mean possibilities like TikTok could be more on the table then? Yeah, I think it will. Uh, there will be some restrictions, but um, we would probably have to look at like things like TikTok and just see how viable it is with our collections. Um, but I think it will be a bit more laid back, and well, I'm hoping it will be. Mm. <laughs> but um, I'm, like, I think for us to kind of stay relevant with um, with our audience and kind of migrating where the audience is migrating as well, because a lot of the audience is moving away from. Um, uh, things like Facebook and they're going into WhatsApp and they're being more because of the data they, they don't know where their data is going so they, people are, are more savvy about where the data is and where it's going and who's using it um, I, think, I think the kind of future of social media is going to be more private social media like places like Discord which is um, a kind of it started as a gaming platform for people to talk when they're playing computer games. They can mm-hmm. talk, but it's exploded into this new, where you can have like different uh, subjects. So like there's different the 
games, there's beauty bloggers on there now, there's like live streaming Twitch people on there and they have their own communities and I think that's where social media is kind of like moving to is where it's going to be more niche basically. More niche and then more control by the individual. Yeah, yeah. So kind of museums have to think about how they're going to respond mm, to that. Mm. And I think there has been discussions um, about that. Um, you you just basically have to move where the audience goes and you have to kind of change with how people's social media activity changes. And do you think like that kind of agile way of working, moving where the audience goes, my gut feeling is, well, that's really counterintuitive to a big like big old museum mm. basically it's that's quite hard yeah do you feel like there are blocks often to what you're trying to do yeah yeah there is um like museums are very behind the times i think especially when it comes to social media mm-hmm. and i find that a lot of people who work in museums this might be controversial um are very um very scared of social media yeah. And yeah. if you um, are scared of social media, you don't want to move where everyone's moving to because you've just got used to a certain way of life on in online, basically. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like on another app, wherever it is. Like they're on WhatsApp, and like, oh, I don't know, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, I think I think there's lots of fear in museums when it comes to digital and social media. I totally agree with you about that. It's a more open-mindedness slowly. Like you were talking about the example of Paula earlier with mm. Facebook Live. Yeah. Maybe that's quite a good example to talk yes. about. Yes. Um, yeah, like with Paula, because um, I approached her um, a year ago, or maybe two years ago, with uh, when I first started doing Facebook Live. And... Um, she, she was really up for it. Um, she is the coordinator at Preston Manor, so she okay. does lots of the um, events there. She writes a lot of blog posts for the collections over there, um, a lot of spooky things. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of... Um, so we, we, we've we done like a few Facebook Lives, one of which was um, a kind of April Fool's Facebook Live that we... Well, it was a video that we did... Um, uh, and we 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 kind of like like made it so that somebody was walking past. So she was telling a spooky story, and we had um, Rosemary walking past who disappeared into um, like, like she was walking past, and it just made made her look like it like she disappeared. And um, like, I think a few people noticed it, saying, "Oh, look at that!" But everyone <laughs> knew it was um, April Fool's joke. And, <laughs> We were like, um, and just recently, because we've got um, an event called House of Ghosts, um, we had another spooky story told by um, by Paula, and uh, it was about a disembodied hand that somebody who had lived in um, the manor like many years ago had woken up to a disembodied hand touching them would freak anyone out really mm. um so um paula um retold that tale and we had a little prop that came out from underneath her chair which was a disembodied hand which was basically a hand on some invisible um thread that was um basically um being pulled by alice in the other room <laughs> but it just looked really creepy and it was quite it, it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek type thing yeah. really <laughs> yeah i kind of see facebook live 
been something that you can kind of bring the museum to the person because mm-hmm. there's a lot that like there might be somebody that's like always wanted to um, visit Preston Manor but they have mo- mobility issues um, they have like they could have anxiety even going into a museum so if you can bring it to to somebody and just um, like can I say hey this is what we do and like we we're thinking about people that can't come to the museum I think that's a really good way of making content and I think it's a really nice way to kind of like involve people that can't be in the in the museum basically mm-hmm. do you feel like that's kind of here to stay that's a medium you no I don't think anything's here to stay really <laughs> with social media I think it's mm-hmm. always like even like even now a lot of people are moving away from Facebook live and they're doing evergreen content so they have videos that are more professionally made because the kind of limitations of like live streaming especially when you're using my type of um with my kit that I have, I just have an iPhone and a selfie stick, mm-hmm. which is people are looking at more quality rather than like quantity. And mm-hmm. um, what's the situation with the kit, and what what does that mean? Like the goods and the bads for yeah. Well, the kit started as my iPhone and a selfie stick, a broken selfie stick that I had. <laughs> which, um, <laughs> so I had this little selfie stick that I'd bought, like it was like five ninety nine from eBay or something, um, and it was supposed to plug into your. Like, this is when the iPhone had like a earphone jack, mm-hmm. and it would plug into that, and then you could like use the button to like take pictures and stuff. But then it broke because it's only five ninety nine from um, eBay. <laughs> you can actually look at the Facebook lives um, in the early early years, <laughs> um, and it was very shaky footage and me running around like <laughs> challenge Annika with my um, with my iPhone and just kind of like ju- just getting people talking which I think some people some people in the audience probably liked because it was very amateur and but the kit evolved from there it, I got this like fancy gimbal that I saw in the app store one day at the apple store one day and I was like ooh that looks nice so then it became more um, uh, smoother and I wasn't had I didn't have shaky hand footage or me when I was walking it would kind of like jump up and down <laughs> um, and sometimes the with my old selfie stick the um, the the connection would like fall over and like all of a sudden you'd be I'd be like filming Paula and the next minute you'd see my shoes basically because it'd just fall over <laughs> which was really embarrassing <laughs> so now it's just my iPhone 10 and my gimbal which stabilizes the video and makes it a little bit more um mm. uh uh, professional looking but I did break that I broke the button on that so um. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't have um, much um, luck with um, technology I usually break it <laughs> and uh, but it is it's, it's proving very good for me now um, and I've got like a, a, a big camera as well which um, is better quality video mm-hmm. which I use more often now um, just to kind of get better quality video um the iphone is fine it's got 4k recording but it can be a bit jittery sometimes when Mm. you when you're editing it on like premiere pro so it sounds like you've sort of had to teach yourself yeah you know often digital marketing like there's a whole team in a big arts organization 
Do you think like there's a, an awareness of how important what you're doing is for the organisation? Um, I think so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, support. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there enough support? Like it sounds, it sounds to me a bit stressful that you're like rushing around with um, <laughs> with all these sticks. Yeah. Like I like I do I like I do get lots of support. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, I kind of mostly do it by myself. But I think I'm the type of person that like. I, I, I kind of have this vision of like what I want to do and I kind of look at the ways to do it without spending too much money. Mm. Well, I was wondering about what would be your biggest like aspirational hope for RPM? I would really like um, more money to do. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. Just more money? Yeah, more money would be <laughs> lovely to be able to to do like more content more yeah like like to 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 get the more stories out to our audience i think yeah. um to kind of advertise more as well would be nice to get content out to more people they may have never even heard of the pavilion because there is content out there that other museums are doing but they have the money to do it which yeah. is that kind of makes me sad really <laughs> when i see him like oh <laughs> Places like Brighton um, is very lucky to have such a amazing quirky building um, mm-hmm. that was built by some crazy prince like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's very lucky. I think they're very. I think the people of Brighton are very lucky to have something like that. But a lot of local people don't have never walked inside it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to get more local people to see what belongs to them because mm. the pavilion does belong to the to the people of Brighton it would be nice to have the people of Brighton to see what they what they have mm. on the doorstep mm. um, for example the West Pier is gone and if like that could happen to the pavilion if it doesn't have the funding um, in the future and that's why I think it's good for it to go into the truck to a trust and mm-hmm. we can get more money back to to just keep the pavilion for another hundred years because it could very well be that it will be like the the west pier and disappear in mm. another hundred years time which would be very sad i think especially for the people of brighton but also for the staff who spend a lot of time they love the building as well yeah um to like just to basically kind of make it like last for the next generations like that's mm. kind of how I kind of see the content that I create it's been something that people will look back on in like a couple of hundred years saying oh yeah this person got it about <laughs> um, about the pavilion and it might be on like some digital media bank in the, in the future where they're like I wonder who made that video about <laughs> Preston Manor um, <laughs> and then they'll listen to this and they'll be like wow she made all that with a broken selfie stick <laughs> the fabled selfie stick that's now in the museum yeah. 5.99 from eBay oh that, I'd love it if your selfie stick ended up in the museum we we have to adapt with the changing times and also there, there's a lot of uncertainty in especially in the UK right now with, with Brexit and stuff so my personal opinion is a lot of people are looking for something like to escape the kind of reality of um, like what's already like out there. So like every day you've got something about Brexit 
Um, so like if, if there's like a museum that's talking about some pagodas that came from China, like that might make people escape into kind of forget about the world for a little bit and just kind of like, oh yeah, that, that's mm. nice. Um, mm. Social media can be escape from the real world for a little while. It can entertain people as well. Mm. But I think as a museum, you just have to kind of like go with the flow of what's happening in the world as well. Nicola, thanks so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. And um, yeah, just a really, really valuable perspective. So I'm impressed up now. There's a lot in this interview that speaks to the situation we find ourselves in our need as museums to better respond to growing audience concerns over internet privacy, to acknowledge that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to technology and that change is now a permanent state in museums, not a one-off event. But also, Nicola talks about how museums help people escape. And there's something in this. Since the pandemic, we've seen museums provide more opportunities for people to learn about history and themselves without having to physically enter a building, to research and explore using online museum collections, to find interesting lines of flight, and to make connections using online resources. In other words, while the coronavirus pandemic has had many, many detrimental effects, it has enabled museums to reorientate themselves as educational establishments, albeit ones that need to urgently challenge and reframe some of their collections and historical narratives. It feels apt that the individual who gets the final word is Tasha Brown, who was the youngest person I spoke to for this podcast. Last year, Tasha was a trainee at the Royal Pavilion and Museums on the Museum Futures training programme led by the British Museum. Here's what we discussed. Yes, so I am Tasha. I'm the Museum Features Trainee at Royal Pavilion Museums. And the Museum Features Traineeship is a programme run by the British Museum uh, with eight partner museums across the country. Um, So there's the British Museum, the Garden Museum in London, there's Norfolk Museum Service, there's Museum of East Anglian Life, National Museums Liverpool, Southwest Heritage Trust, York Museums Trust and Royal Pavilion Museums, where I'm the trainee. Uh, so we have training days where we meet up once a month. It's funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and it's all about finding a new route into the sector mm-hmm. um, for sort of 18 to 24 year olds to start their career without a degree and um, sort of diversify the workforce and get younger people in. What's it been like moving into an institution that obviously is quite uh, traditional, quite old, has a potentially uh, older workforce attached to it. What's been your kind of take home so far of, of how it's been? Yeah, well, I don't know whether it's just being in Brighton or a change in the museum sector, but I mean, it's been a very sort of accepting experience. I thought I'd sort of just be the young trainee, sort of you know just in the corner, um, not have much involvement, but just to be part of the team and have you know actual projects to be working on with curators and you know do productive work has been really interesting and you know mm. I, it's been an incredible experience just to have this training and you know start my career mm. and something I definitely hope to continue. Okay and then what about 
you know opportunities like what has it opened up for you I mean just I guess I guess in terms of how you think about um the role of digital in museums I quite like to interrogate that in terms of digital that again has been a very big learning curve for me I I knew nothing about digital really when I started very little especially for a teenager um <laughs> and it's been I've learned you know most of the stuff I know about digital I've learned in the last seven months yeah, getting to work with the digital team has been amazing just you know I'm constantly asking questions and that's just how I've learned I've learned so much through just constantly asking questions mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah in terms of history I think that is another interesting thing in the sector is that most staff have either sort of came into it through a love of history or a love of art and I mean that's again something I'm trying to learn more about about you know art and art history mm-hmm. um but yeah I mean just growing up in Brighton I've always lived in Brighton and just I've always thought it'd be amazing to work at the pavilion I didn't think it would actually be a possibility especially without a degree actually when I was working at um Preston Manor for a day um it was actually the first week of my traineeship um I was talking to Paula who I believe has done a podcast Mm -hmm. and she mentioned about a little church next to Preston Manor with medieval frescoes in it and I love medieval history that's my area and um I was fascinated by it. I looked into it and, you know, there's 13th century frescoes surviving. Um, it, I think some original, um, some of the original building as well. And um, the more I sort of researched the church, its history, the more I just sort of wanted to go. And I mean, I'd never been before. I'd never heard of it, even though I lived in Brighton all my life. And so I, I went along and I was just fascinated by it. And so I, I wrote a blog on, on the Pavilion website about the church's history and that was just incredible to learn a new story about the city I grew up in. What is it about medieval history that that gets you going? To be honest, I have no idea. It's just <laughs> a random thing. I came straight from A-levels last year and I did medieval history at A-levels so I guess that probably you know sparked an interest. Especially I think also the fact that a lot of the oldest buildings around, I mean the oldest building in Brighton is a medieval church. I think it's St Nicholas Church okay. um, on Dyke Road you know just the fact that you can still see those buildings mm. you know, even though they're, they're so old it's just fascinating to me that you know it's so different to modern day but you can still there are still some remnants of it I mean one of my first projects I did when I started was uh, digitizing the pavilion review which uh, was the old RPM newsletter uh, which went from 1984 to, I think, 2008. Mm-hmm. So I was involved in scanning it and uh, making a page on the website to make an index um, and an archive and uploading it to our um, our digital media bank. And there was a story in there about Portslade Manor, which is the ruins of a 12th century manor house, which was owned by the Chief Justice Jury of England at one point. Um, and you know that's a fascinating story and I'd never heard of it even though I you know I grew up 10 minutes away from it and I'm now involved in a a history project around it and you know that opened up so many doors for me (laughs) these are just stories that you know would have been fascinating to learn growing up and just never have yeah and it's great to learn them now also when I started I didn't have much of an interest in museums specifically it was just history and um historical sites and I've now just got a love of museums 
and now everywhere I go I find the nearest museum <laughs> it's sort of just this little sanctuary for me mm, yeah. that's really nice to hear that yeah I mean after a training day at the British Museum in June I I didn't want to get the train back in rush hour so I thought I'll go to Museum of London and wait there until the rush hour's over and I think that's I wish I did that more as a kid you know mm. randomly going to museums just spontaneously I guess you have to have your imagination untapped though mm. sometimes you don't get it till later to like realize the potential of something yeah and that's okay yeah you know you came from kind of this really love of history but you're quite new to the art side of things mm. what have you learned I guess about the role of museums in that and sort of bringing together art and history well I mean I'm definitely still learning uh, about art that's the great thing about traineeships is know it's on the job learning and I'm learning something new every day mm-hmm. um I mean I think I sort of saw museums as sort of holding historical collections and art galleries as you know holding art collections and them being very different yeah um and you know especially Brighton Museum and Art Gallery that it combines the two and you know I sort of have a new appreciation for art that I you know didn't have before even if I don't know a massive amount about it yet I have an appreciation which is halfway there. It sounds like a, maybe a, an emerging understanding of its role in capturing history. Yeah, exactly. Especially art history is a way into loving art. There's something I want to look into. And yeah, actually there's um, there's one painting in um, Brighton Museum in the Portraits Gallery um, that I sort of just walked through in my first week of the training ship I walked through and thought, there's a painting of a dog and it looks exactly like my dog (laughs) it's like identical it's like someone painted my dog and I love that that's still my favorite thing in the collections did you find anything (laughs) out about the painting maybe it was Um, like your the great 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 granddad of your dog maybe (laughs) that would be that'd be an interesting story (laughs) but yeah I mean something like that there's you know just a portrait in the gallery that I walk past you know every day and I don't think I would have looked into it if it hadn't looked identical to my dog. In there. <laughs> and then, you know, I looked on our collections management system and just, you know, looked for more details of, of the painting. But again, like, it's sort of all these traces of history. This is why I find RPM so fascinating, is that there's so many jigsaw puzzle pieces <laughs> that we're still trying to put together. Yeah. That still seem to be... Exactly. And I mean... These are the really fascinating bits that often local history stories or anecdotes are sort of just in the brains of, you know, one curator. It's, mm. you know, something that's... Yeah. It's just sort of, you know, sharing stories, especially on the blog is a great way to do that. Yeah. Is such an important part of sharing museums' collections. You know, these stories are just as important as the objects. That's a lot. not more important. Most definitely. And... So you've noticed sort of the rich minds of the people that work mm. at RPM. Yeah, that's that's been the best part of the traineeship, just rattling their brains and just <laughs> learning from them. And just on the digitisation point, what's actually involved in digitising the archaeology collection? Like, what do you have to do? Um, I mean, at the moment it's still sort of being worked out, being sort of arranged, but... Um, it will be from accessioning the objects through to publishing them online. Okay. Um, and so it sort of involves creating the records on our collections management system. Then it will be either, some of them will be scanned on our book scanner um, and some will be 
a photograph using a camera, then processing the images and getting them online on our digital media bank and probably on the website. Okay. Um, and hopefully sort of a narrative story with it, like a blog post. Yeah. There's so much written about the importance of digitising collections at the moment and mm. sometimes I wonder how much is actually understood about what does that involve, what does it mean to accession something. Yeah. It's that, still yeah. something I'm learning as well. I mean, yeah. I've, I've sort of done parts of the process you know I've, I've done scanning of um, postcards in the local history collections I've sort of been doing that since I started um, just every now and then you know I've done work on the collections management system and um, published um, stuff I've uploaded stuff to online collections but this would be the first time I'm sort of doing the whole process from start to finish Mm. so yeah I'm very much looking forward to that Mm. it's on the job learning I mean it sounds amazing as someone who did an art history degree (laughs) I think I would have probably benefited more from spending three years just in an art gallery no disrespect to the art history teachers (laughs) but how do you feel about not going to university about doing this option instead because I think it's a such an exciting and new model for the sector it is yeah and I mean traineeships are becoming more popular now I think or more common in the sector Mm -hmm. um I mean there are sort of a few um I mean there's quite a few graduate traineeships but you know there's sort of more entry-level traineeships sort of coming up and museum features being one of them um because I mean so many people do museum studies degrees and then find then they don't have the experience working in a museum to then get a job as then have to do a graduate traineeship or volunteer in the sector which um having the opportunity is such a rare opportunity as well to get on the job training and get a qualification at the end it's a level three qualification in cultural heritage it's equivalent to a levels i was sort of looking into going to uni but i was just you know i wasn't set on a on a course Mm -hmm. and i was you know scared i'd drop out and then still be lumped with the uni fees and um so i thought i'd take a gap year sort of to find what i want to do and um the traineeship sort of came at the perfect time it was um my teacher at a levels sent a link on to me and said I hope you still haven't got a job you know, this, is a, <laughs> this is a fantastic opportunity um, and you know I just sort of mentioned I'd like to work at the pavilion but you know thought it'd be you know volunteering once a week and you know this experience has just been perfect for me it just I've learned so much mm, you know, I, I can tell that from the way you've been talking yeah and I the fact that I've still got five more months to learn more I'm so lucky and just every day I sort of think this is you know a fantastic opportunity and I'm one of eight people who get to do it is Mm -hmm. you know it's fantastic and have you been the uh, key medievalist in 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 amongst the trainees I think so (laughs) I I, I usually am there's not many medievalists in 19 years old (laughs) no well I think you've got you're onto a niche there yeah (laughs) a new trend exactly (laughs) Thanks, Sasha. I reckon we'll leave it. Thanks, Sophie. We will leave it there for now. Thank you. I'm going to press stop. So, uh, see how we go. Oh, no. I decided to end with Tasha's interview because, as I see it, it's the Tashas of this world who are the future of our museums. It will be their enthusiasm and appreciation their commitment to the giant jigsaw that they will inherit and their shoulders upon which the future of the museum will unfold. 
As we have seen in previous episodes, alternative models of training for museum work must continue if we are going to respond and adapt to the changing spaces and ways in which museums operate. This episode also ends with a historic moment, a moment that has been mentioned from the very beginning of this podcast. Royal Pavilion and Museums has finally moved from being managed by Brighton & Hove City Council to Independent Trust. Headley Swain has been appointed as the first Chief Executive following the retirement of Janita Bagshaw, who we met in episode two, and who has led the service for 14 years. Undoubtedly, the organisation is facing a difficult moment in its history, as the closure of all of the museum sites during the lockdown led to a loss of more than £1 million in revenue. However, the hope is that the move to trust will ensure the service is sustainable and resilient, and able to deliver the best possible offer to residents and visitors. While the Royal Pavilion, Brighton Museum and Preston Manor have now reopened, Hove Museum and Art Gallery and the Booth Museum of Natural History will reopen next year. Although challenging, this is undeniably a very exciting time for the museum service, a time when they can, more than ever, focus on the stories that make what they do so vital for Brighton and beyond. And with that, I shall bid you adieu but not before thanking from the bottom of my heart all of the staff and volunteers at Royal Pavilion and Museums, Brighton and Hove, who made this podcast possible in the first place. I would also like to express my deep gratitude to Kevin Bacon, Digital Manager at Royal Pavilion and Museums, to Matt Stokes for making such a smashing podcast artwork, and Chris Thorpe Tracy, aka Lo-Fi Arts, who did the sterling job of editing this podcast and who is also to praise for the wonderful musical interludes that you can hear throughout. Finally, I'd like to thank my team at One by One in the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and all of the project partners. What started as research on how to build digital confidence in museums has become a meditation on the fact that digital technology is intrinsically linked in every way to how we tell the stories of our museums in 2020. Okay, that's enough meditating from me. Goodbye. Dum, dum, dum. The voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums are supported by the One by One Research Project, the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, the Keep, Arts Council England, and produced by Lo-Fi Arts. <laughs>